This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. If I know that the Lord is with me, if I know that he's called me, if I know that I have the promise of his presence and his provision and his power and that the Holy Spirit is in me and that Jesus said he'll never leave me and never forsake me, then that trumps anything I don't understand or anything I don't get or anything that causes me to be anxious or fearful or worried or that's outside of my control. God is with me. Has God ever asked you to do something that didn't make sense at the time? Joshua was put in command of the Israelite army when they were to enter the Holy Land. The only problem was that the Holy Land was occupied by the Canaanites and surrounded by giant fortified walls. So what does God tell Joshua to do? Walk in circles around the city. Can you imagine hearing that? Would you have the faith to obey? In today's message, Pastor Josh will show you how to have faith when the future seems unsure. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. As he continues his message, Faith Declares Jesus is Better. We are in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at the conclusion of chapter 11 as we've been studying the characteristics of biblical faith. And so if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 40 as we come to the conclusion of the chapter. As we conclude Hebrews chapter 11, it's been a five-part study in the attributes of biblical faith. We find the summary of what faith ultimately accomplishes in our lives. The rest of Hebrews 11 is a quick shot, quick rapid fire succession of people and events that took place. Paul here saying, I don't have the time or the space to write about all these in depth, um, but we're going to tackle these others. We've been going down the list of the heroes of faith. But as we come to the end of chapter 11, we see something quite sobering. And quite frankly, I believe that this is one of the most sobering and challenging passages in the entire book of Hebrews as far as practically what it means for us in living a life of faith. Because I might divide it into two sections. In verses 30 through 34, we see the victories of faith, all the high moments, all the incredible, supernatural, divine, awe-inspiring moments that come from living a life of faith. But in verses 36 through 40, we might call that the valleys of faith. Verses 30 through 35 teaches us that mountaintop moments are part of the faith experience. If you're not living life as an adventure, I challenge to ask you, what Jesus are you following? Because there are going to be always these incredible moments where we see God doing the impossible, where we see God bringing us out of places of fear and insecurity and doubt into places of faith and using us in ways that we didn't even think were possible. But verses 35 through 40 continue to teach us that that same faith, that true faith, doesn't always end in worldly victory, in comfort, or in ease. Far too often in our Western Christian mindset, because of years of bad theology in our churches, we've come to the conclusion that if we live by faith, 
it must mean that the ultimate conclusion of that in our life will be the fulfillment of all our dreams, the realization of all our worldly ambitions, and the establishment of security and comfort in this life. But today we learn something quite contrary. That yes, faith will lead us into incredible victories for God. He will do the impossible in ways that we weren't expecting. But that same exact faith may also lead us to be rejected by the world, persecuted, abandonment of all of our worldly moorings and anchors, and even the abandonment and the loss of our worldly home, even to the point of death. So with that uplifting note, let's jump right in. Three points today, three more attributes of faith as we close. You might want to jot this first one down as we look into the life of Joshua and Jericho. Faith, number one, trusts in the methods and the power of God. Faith trusts in God's methods and in God's power. In verse 30, again, we read this. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So two events here within the same story. As we move chronologically, we come to the portion of Jewish history where the people of Israel, after 40 years of wandering in the desert, complaining against God, idolatry, and unbelief, except for Joshua and Caleb, an entire generation now has passed. And the new generation is about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan, which God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give them as an inheritance to put his name forever this place, their home of God's people. And now they're going to realize that under the leader of Joshua. I remember when my daughters were younger and they were learning the books of the Bible of the Old Testament. I remember one of them, I don't remember which one, said, Dad, Joshua isn't very nice. And I said, why not? And he said, because Joshua is always judging Ruth. (laughs) Some of you guys don't get it yet. (laughs) Or you just don't think it's funny, either one. (laughs) Joshua judges Ruth. Uh, yeah. Where was I? So <laughs> let us for a moment attempt to place ourselves in the shoes of Joshua. All right. Here is a man who had been waiting literally 40 years by faith in the land that he himself saw with his own eyes and came back. And him and Caleb were the only two who believed God was capable of defeating the giants and the enemies who were in the land. And now his faith is becoming his sight. But the well of emotions that he might have been feeling, excitement, faith, and at the same time, Moses, the one who he had been leaning on and relying on and learning from, is gone. Maybe there's a little trepidation now that he's the leader. Now the the weight of the vision is on his shoulders. How are we going to do this? How are we going to accomplish this? Maybe some questions for God. And God had continued to make himself known to Joshua. For when Moses died and Joshua took the mantle of leadership, the Lord told him very clearly in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed. For the Lord your God is what? Is with you wherever you go. He gave him the promise of God's presence and guidance and protection and strength as he took the mantle of leadership. 
And the people gathered, the ark of God went before them. You know the story, the banks of the Jordan dried up in a supernatural moment, much like the Red Sea deliverance. And all of God's people passed into the promise of God. But now what? How was a somewhat lackluster, ill-equipped Israeli army going to defeat the strongest fortified outposts and people in the land, their first step into this conquest, into the reception of God's promises? And what a faith-building experience. Joshua, considering his next move, has an encounter, you might remember, with the general, so to speak, the commander of the Lord's armies, which I believe was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord himself. The Lord tells him, take off your sandals for the ground which you stand on is holy. And Joshua is only interested in one thing. Whose side are you on? Are you for us? Or are you against us? And the Lord says, no, but I'm with the Lord's armies, which begs the question on a completely different note. It's not about, is God on your side? The question is, are you on his side? For if you are with God, there can be none against you. For if God is for us, who can be against us? But as they're discussing, the Lord gives Joshua a battle plan. And it's with the promise. Joshua, behold, look at I have given Jericho into your hands. Okay, Lord, then what's the strategy? Going to get the archers, going to mobilize the troops, going to get the chariots built, going to get the spears all sharpened. What's the plan? And the Lord says, go march around the city. And then what? Then march around it again. And then what? Then march around it again. And don't say anything. Just go for six days and just march around the city. And on that seventh day, you're going to march around it. And when you march around it that final time, you're going to blow the trumpets and you're going to shout. And that's the plan. Okay, Lord. God provides an unconventional strategy that any other military force in the world would have mocked and jeered at. This plan would take seven days, a lot of marching in circles, a lot of silence, some oddly timed shofar blast, and some shouting. But I want you to notice that Joshua doesn't argue. He doesn't hesitate at the command, and yet he comes and he makes preparations for God's people to go through with God's plan. He calls the priests together for this week-long march of silence. The people obey, and you all know the end of the story. On the seventh day, at the end of the final march, the trumpets blew, the voices were raised, the victory shout they'd been holding in for six days was released, and the presence of God came down and leveled the city in a supernatural way, in a way that no one could deny that it was only by the power of God. And by the way, I've been to Jericho, the ruins discovered there several times, and all the archaeological evidence still today points to the supernatural destruction as outlined in the Bible. They found that the walls caved in on themselves, just as the Bible said that they would, where normally if you were to do a rampart and siege, the walls would fall out from themselves. They found all the burnt clay stones at the foundation. They found the buckets of stored grain in the lower sections where they would have been storing grain as the siege continued day after day. It's pretty amazing. But I want you to think about this faith. First, how much faith did it take for an army of men who were trained to fight to throw away their conventional wisdom, 
put aside their trust in conventional military tactics and might and make themselves look like fools before their enemies. That takes some faith. How much faith did it take after five days, after six days, and nothing's happening and nothing's changing and you're feeling foolish and you're wondering if you're wasting your time? How much faith did it take of Joshua being the leader, encouraging the people? Listen, I know you don't get it, and I know you don't see anything, and I know it's hard to understand, but keep going. God promised that he would give us the victory. Clearly, though, the people had the faith to trust God. What gave human beings the ability to trust God in the midst of circumstances they couldn't wrap their mind around and a methodology that was completely contrary to everything they had learned up to this point? Well, I believe it was two things. And I believe these two things are essential for us. Number one, they had the presence of God. At the center of this whole incident was the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the Bible tells us that the only thing that was protected by soldiers in that whole military campaign was the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the people had seen how God's presence, as represented in the Ark, had done great and mighty things as God was in their midst. I might be able to say it like this. The people's confidence in the mission was rooted in the presence of God. Man, there is nothing that scares me more about a mission for Christ than the thought of God not being with me. If I know that the Lord is with me, if I know that he's called me, if I know that I have the promise of his presence and his provision and his power and that the Holy Spirit is in me and that Jesus said he'll never leave me and never forsake me, then that trumps anything I don't understand or anything I don't get or anything that causes me to be anxious or fearful or worried or that's outside of my control. God is with me. Secondly, they had the word of God. However unconventional it was and whatever thoughts were going through Joshua's mind as he's marching around the city of Jericho, what he knows, what he recalls to mind is God told me that he's given us this city. So I don't need to understand the method as long as I trust the one who made the promise. And this is all very important to us because in discerning God's will for our lives and taking steps of faith and walking in obedience to God, there are questions that we need to ask and there are questions we don't need to ask. Let me go through these with you. In discerning God's will for your life, here are the questions you need to ask. Number one, does it honor God's word? To put it bluntly, if anything you're thinking about doing is in direct violation of what God has already said or revealed, don't do it. I don't care if your feelings tell you you should do it. I don't care if your friends tell you you should do it. I don't care if it just seems right. The whole world is telling you you should do it. If it says in God's word, don't do it, then don't do it. If it says do do it, then do it, regardless of how silly or unconventional or mysterious it might seem to you. Second question we need to ask is, does it honor God's presence? In other words, if you're thinking about doing something that you wouldn't want God to be present in the room with, then don't do it. God's with you. His presence is in you. Does this honor God's presence? Third question, does it honor God's power? Well, Josh, what do you mean does it honor God's power? When I look at the story of Joshua, their obedience to God and the destruction of Jerusalem was to magnify the power of God, true or false, so that all the nations around could see God did this. Then the God of Israel delivered them. 
And I think it is very healthy for every Christian to put themselves to make sure that they are in places where they are walking outside of their resources, outside of their ability to control a situation, outside of the possibility of being able to manage and make all the decisions and call all the shots. I think that God wants us to be following him in ways where we're always taking steps into the unknown, where we have to trust his power. We have to trust his provision. We have to trust because we are not capable within ourselves. God calls us to places of that kind of faith. And then the fourth question is, does it honor God's purpose? God's express purpose was to give the land to his people. And you and I, too, can have confidence in God's provision and power and resources when we know that our motives are to do the things that are in his heart to do. We can confidently take steps of faith into the unknown if we know that we're doing it in direct obedience to what God wants to accomplish. If we know that God wants to seek and save the lost, then that gives us the confidence, doesn't it, to go talk to our neighbor or our coworker or a friend about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing if this is in God's heart to do, does it honor God's purpose? Here are the questions we shouldn't ask when determining whether or not we're going to take a step of faith. Is this safe? I hate to break it to you. While it's wise to take safety measures, our safety is not God's primary concern. Lack of physical safety is never a determining factor in whether or not you should say yes to God. I really feel like I should go on this mission trip, but is it safe? Who cares? Here's the bigger question. I don't ask God, is it safe? I obey God and I trust him with my safety. Because here's a beautiful thing about walking with Jesus. If you are confidently walking with Jesus by faith, you know you are not getting out of here until Jesus says your time is up. When he says it's done, it's done. But until then, you have the call to put yourself out for the purposes of God. Not to enact measures of self-preservation to keep you safe. I'll follow Jesus as long as it fits within the parameters of where I feel comfortable and safe and protected. No. Jesus calls us, even at times, to the giving of our own lives for the sake of his gospel and his calling. The second question we should not ask is, does this make sense to me? One quick reading of the Bible will show you that God is always calling his people to do things that don't make worldly sense to their human minds. If your goal is to wrap your mind around every venture of faith before you say yes to God, you'll find a disappointment when you discover that God is not obligated to tell you all the details beforehand. Does this make sense to me? Third thing we should not ask ourselves, is this what the world would do? Because 90% of the time, the answer is going to be no. Does it matter if what God says looks different than what the college professor says, or the experts say, or the politicians say? 
Don't we have a Bible that tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is greater and stronger than men? And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is how we are salt and light. That's how we look different. We're following the directive of God and his truth and his word, not the opinions of an unbelieving world. That's what makes us different. I think if I was to sum up Joshua's Jericho experience, I would put it like this, that the greatest evidence of trusting God's word is obeying God's word, even when it defies our understanding. Likewise, the greatest evidence of unbelief in our lives is disobedience to God's word because we are convinced that our way is better. How do I know? How do I look in the mirror and get an accurate reflection of whether or not I truly trust God? It's whether or not I'm obeying him. Even if I don't understand his methods, even if I don't understand, even if I don't have all the details And what's the greatest sign of unbelief in my life is when I'm walking in disobedience because I want to maintain control. Well, while faith was taking place outside the walls of Jericho, there was also genuine faith taking place inside the walls of Jericho by one woman. The most unlikely character you would expect to find faith in. Probably, maybe even in the entire Bible. As the People of Israel were marching around and blowing trumpets, and it was inciting intimidation and fear within the hearts of the unbelieving heathens that were inside Jericho. There was one woman named Rahab, who previous to the attack had seen the two Hebrew spies and told them to come into her house and hid them from those who were seeking their lives and provided them a way of escape from the city. And her only request is when you guys, when the Lord delivers this city into your hands, remember me and my family. And I believe it's in Joshua 2. I love what she says. She says, for the Lord is the God of heaven and earth, and he will deliver. You see, Rahab had only heard about the God of Israel through second, third-hand accounts. She'd only heard about what God had done from a distance. But when she heard about the God of Israel, something in her heart said, there is no fortified city that can stop this God. There are no amount of idols. There are no amount of armies that can stop this God. I'm choosing to trust in him. Not the security of the walls, not the safety of my home, not the identification with my people. I'm choosing to put it all aside and to call upon this God for my salvation. And that faith that she demonstrated delivered her alive and her family alive, the only ones, when God brought destruction to Jericho. And Rahab's faith was represented by a scarlet cord that was hanging from her window on the wall to identify her as the sole one who was trusting in God's salvation in that whole city. Of course, I believe that the scarlet cord is a beautiful picture of being tied to heaven through the blood of Jesus. That the blood of Jesus over our lives gives that proclamation that we are trusting in God's salvation. But here's what I think is incredible about this story, and this is what I love about the Bible, I love about Jesus, I love about one of the many things I love about God. The people reading Paul's letter to the Hebrews were Hebrews, they were Jews, mostly. 
Thanks for joining us for Pastor Josh's study in the book of Hebrews. Throughout this book, we learn about idol worship. This is when you place a person, people, or things in place of God. Although idol worship was prevalent during the time Hebrews was written, it's still in our world today. From TV to clothes to food to family, it's easy to put other things in place of God. We hope today's teaching has made you more aware of this and that you've been encouraged to seek God first. If you'd like more information about The Ascending Life or would like to hear other teachings from Pastor Josh, visit our website at theascendinglife.com. Once you're there, click on the Media tab and follow the link to our YouTube page. You can also subscribe to our podcast and have the latest message from The Ascending Life as soon as it's available. Feel free to download these messages and take them with you on the go. If you're on social media, find links on our website to our social media pages. We'd love to connect with you there. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram or Twitter to stay up to date with everything happening at The Ascending Life and Grace Calvary Chapel. Our website again is theascendinglife.com. If you're in or near the St. Joseph area, we'd be honored to have you join us at Grace Calvary Church for our weekly service. Find all the information you need at our website, theascendinglife.com. Well, that's it for now. But there's so much more to learn on the next edition of The Ascending Life. So be sure to tune in again. Sin